Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Welcome to A Conversation with History. I'm Harry Chrysler of the Institute of International Studies. Our guest today is Dr. Jocelyn Sassari, who is a research associate at the Middle East Center at Harvard University, where she teaches in the Department of Government and at the Divinity School. She is uh, she has published 13 books and more than 50 articles in European and American journals. Her most recent book is When Islam and Democracy Meet Muslims in Europe and the United States. And her other recent book is European Muslims and the Secular State. Jocelyn, welcome to Berkeley. Thank you. Where were you born and raised? I grew up in the south of France, Marseille, which is a very cosmopolitan city. And uh, I am French by culture and training also. I did all my um, uh, college studies and PhD studies in France. Yeah. Well, let me, let me ask you this first. What, what, what was the discussion like around the dinner table? Was, was, it, was it international affairs, uh, issues uh, related to religion or what? Or does all of that come later when you do your education? Actually, it's interesting. Religion was never a topic at the dinner table. Um, but yeah, politics, international politics was always there. And um, I was interested in religion. That's why I started very early to look into different religious traditions and, and and I decided because at the time it was a big topic I, I started my college uh, studied in Aix-en-Provence and oh, I wanted to do political science and at the time all the professors doing political science uh, were trained or went through some kind of research and experience in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. So Islam was very much central in the French political science, uh, which is kind of a specificity, I think. The people who studied Islam um, in other parts of Europe were coming from other backgrounds, like sociology of immigration, or, or not, not in France. In France it was heavily, and it's still heavily dominated by political scientists, when you look at contemporary Islam. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know that in your work, uh, there is a, a very finely tuned sense of the importance of ethnicity and not just religion. Yeah. Uh, how do you uh, account for that? Is it just because of this, this multicultural setting that is both your, your, your family and uh, where you were educated? I think it's part of it. I think that my background um, made me more aware of this ethnic um, dimension of lots of collective identities. And because I've been crossing different religious groups as well, I can see that at the end of the day, <laughs> the ethnicity is a very uh, cohesive um, identity in which religion can play a role. But most of the time, ethnicity is the most important um, um, identity marker. 
people would, would even color their religious activities or practices through a kind of memory, narrative uh, coming from ethnicity and culture. Food is very important, what you eat, how you eat it, how you share it, kind of oral traditions. And you can see that ethnicity is playing this uh, Uh, out very well. My own background is between kind of Italian and Algerian ethnicity and I can see that um, I can share a lot with Algerian friends or colleagues with a Muslim background just because of that mm -hmm. and, and it's not because of religion per se. What is interesting to me is when people are not always aware of this uh, distinction between ethnicity and religion and tend to attribute to religion religion, all this uh, specificity that has more to do with culture, actually. Mm -hmm. and, and, and France is a, is a place that prides itself on a sort of a, a commitment to creating a universal citizenship and so on, but, but sometimes the, 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 the dream doesn't match the reality. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the French narrative, and when I say narrative here, it refers to the public culture in France, which is very strong. And I know, living now in the U.S., how can this, this can be very surprising for American citizens or colleagues. But the French state has a long tradition of shaping the public space and imposing upon the public space a public culture that is based on this universal abstract of the citizen. It has to leave outside this public space all kinds of specific features like languages, culture, to, in order to enter the space. You cannot have an articulated, recognized public discourse in France based on any particularity. I mean, it has changed a lot. There are some kind of exceptions. If you think of the, of the remaining French territories in the Caribbean, or, or you, you can see that this is not really applied this way in this old part of the remaining part of the, of the colonial empire. You can also see that some territorial minorities like Britannies, Corsican, and I have also connection with Corsican through my father, um, have, have been resisting a lot in the last, let's say, 25 years, 30 years, this kind of definition of an abstract citizen. So it's not like it's making the consensus anymore. It used to. It used to. There, there was a time between the two world war and uh, until the, the end of the second world war, where all minorities were ready to accept this pact of the abstract citizenship in order to get socially promoted. Mm -hmm. Today to abandon or quit your ethnicity or specificity would not automatically open the door of social promotion. So you have more and more resistance mm -hmm. uh, to that. Now, now, you have worked in the United States and in the book that we're going to yeah. talk about in a minute, uh, you make comparisons of Europe with the United States. What, yeah. what, what do you see as, as, as the difference with the U.S. before we talk about Islam in, in terms of its ability to to be resilient and assimilate and, and deal with diversity? I mean, what is very uh, striking to me is that uh, the public culture of American 
society is based on universal principles. But it doesn't mean anymore, especially since 65 and the civil rights movement, it doesn't mean anymore that it's um, flavored or shaped by one particular ethnicity or one particular culture. I mean, it was true before 65. You could say that this eternal principle or strong principles of democracy, human rights, equality were very much associated with the WASP culture, so to speak. It's not true anymore. You can partake in these principles and accept these principles and in the same time keep your own ethnic background. And, and people are not going to suspect that you are not such a good citizen if you keep up some uh, cultural specificities related to India or, or the Balkans or Africa, just because, you know, if you show you are a good citizen it, it, and you partake in these principles, you don't have also to um, perform or to behave like a wasp to do so anymore. And I think this makes a big, big difference. Uh, you, one of the topics that has been the focus of your research is, is Islam in the West, and, and I want to walk you through now uh, some of uh, your thoughts on, on this uh, very important subject. And, and so let, let's begin with Islam itself, and, and, and at the beginning of, of your work on when Islam and democracy uh, meet, uh, you, you pose the question, does the fact of being Muslim indeed constitutes some kind of extraordinary situation that makes assimilation and acculturation difficult or impossible. That, that's the, the, the question you're grappling with. I want to start, because I, I know the thrust of, of most of what you're saying is it can assimilate, but, but let's look at the elements in uh, the religion that resist such assimilation, uh, uh, because there are elements there. Talk a little about that. Yeah. Um, Muslims coming to the West, uh, especially in Europe, it's less true in the American context, are coming from societies where religion is religion of the state or religion of the, ma of the majority. So it does shape in a very specific way um, their religiosity, their practice, their identity as citizen and individuals. So when they arrive in a secular democratic context, what, what interests me here is not the, so much the fact that they are a minority. There have been Muslim minorities across history. This is the first time that the debate on Islam and democracy is not only a theoretical debate, like it's happening in the Middle East now. Everybody is looking for the signs of democratization. But I can also fill up this room with books and articles and positions about this particular possibility or not. So what interested me in the condition of Muslims in the West is that it's not a theoretical um, discussion anymore. It's the reality of people that have to live as citizens, as fathers, as employees, as employers, under the rule of a secular state. 
So what does it mean? The question here is for me is what does it mean in terms of negotiation, compromise, um, interaction between your own tradition or what you know about it and the dominant norms uh, that you have to adapt to? And uh, what is uh, what come up from this study and research is that Muslims in the West rarely contest the secular nature of the state. Mm-hmm. Unlike lots of you know things you can hear, uh, even among scholars, they take it for granted that there is an incompatibility mm-hmm. there. The research I did showed clearly that there is no incompatibility. There have been recently in 2007 a Gallup polling, the first one done among Muslims in Paris, London and Berlin, showing that Muslims praise highly. This was the first quantitative survey showing that Muslims in all these cities pray highly the secular the nature of the European state. They like it. And when you interview them in a more qualitative way, they would tell you it's much more empowering as a believer to live under a secular regime because you can pretty much choose to be a Muslim or not to be a Muslim. It's mm-hmm. up to you. It's not because it's a social convention or the norm of the state of the society in which you live. It's because you want to. So they acknowledge a deeper sense of spirituality than they would do in in Muslim countries. Mm. So this is the first thing. You can also see that, that this, this lack of contestation in the fact that there are very few or very uh, inefficient Islamic parties in Europe, for example. No Muslims would like to do politics based on Islam. When they do politics, they enter the main, mainstream political parties. Mm-hmm. So, so but, but before you go on, let me just, I, I, I do want to uh, understand this this weight of tradition a little better and the fact that there's a, a Muslim state and then we'll we'll uh, walk you through th- these this adaptation and assimilation yeah. that, that does occur in the United States and and I'm c- curious is there is there a uh, w- the, the weight of coming from a Muslim state yeah. where uh, the state is implicated uh, in the religion and where the religion, in a way, doesn't define a separation uh, of church and state. uh, is, 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 that is one of the weights that, that you've already mentioned. Now, clearly after 9-11, the stereotypes of Muslims is also a weight on their shoulders in terms of uh, what, what I'm trying to focus on is the perception that we have of why we have perceptions that are wrong about Muslims in the West. And I, I want to understand where that's coming from. I mean, so the first perception, as you said, is based on the fact that Islam is religion of the state. The second aspect of it is that Islam is very much present in the social and public space. Uh, there is no privatization of Islam. Right, okay. And this is, I think, the major, in my opinion, the major challenge when mm-hmm. Muslims come to the West, because you have to be, to act as a Muslim, not only in your place of worship or your home or your intimacy, but really it's part of what defines you in public and social life. Um, and for some Muslims coming to the West, this may be a challenge, because they have to really define the frontier between public and private. 
Mm-hmm. And and all, I mean, we we had uh, some uh, very visible examples of that through the headscarf, but it's not the only one. I mean, I would not say that the headscarf is a threat on on the on the European public spaces, you know. But they are kind of a necessity to renegotiate um, your your public discourse, your social interaction. You cannot just, you know, judge your fellow neighbor or citizen based on its religious behavior. Mm -hmm. And that's what Muslims tend to do a lot of time when they come from Muslim countries. So so in the West, and let's go on where you were going, there there is a, uh, there is uh, the social conditions offer the potential of empowering people yeah. to see their religion in a different light. Absolutely. They see it as a more individual responsibility. Again, I don't want to be misunderstood here. You have the same mm-hmm. trend in Muslim societies as well. There is a trend toward indi- individualization as well. But the social discourse is very much... Uh, covering this up, while in the West, you know, you can be a very good Muslim if you want to be. You can quit if you want to quit, and and they praise this uh, at the personal level. They really praise this freedom, and they see it as an empowerment as um, as believers. However, it doesn't mean that there are no tensions between the social dominant norms or the legal dominant norms and the reality of being a Muslim in the West. The major zones of conflict are not on the state. Again, this is one of the big misunderstandings of the Westerners, and especially after 9-11, where people think that Muslims are going to attack the institutions and, and, and be a threat to national security. The reality is that there are indeed conflicts and tension, but on very individual uh, Hmm. matters like family laws, uh, status of marriage, of divorce, of custody of children. That's where I've seen the most tension between Islamic prescription on how I behave myself as a wife, as a husband, as a child, and how the civil dominant law is defining responsibilities and rights in a different way. Mm-hmm. The major zone of conflict is on, just to give you concrete examples, on um, forced marriages, lots of Muslim fathers, again, that's why you can see this conflation between patriarchal culture and Islam. Lots of Muslim fathers think that it's their duty as Muslim to impose a partner on their daughters. And some of them would rebel against that um, and say, this is not true. Islam is, uh, marriage in Islam is an, a contract between two free individuals. And you can see here the clash between, again, ethnicity and religious principles. And you have, and this can become, like in the British case, a public debate. The parliamentary, in a, mm. it became a parliamentary concern in in the UK. The parliament uh, parliament took position, tried to help these young women, and Muslim cleric from the new generation came to support the young women who were refusing these kinds of forced marriages. Mm. The other big topic of tension is about. Uh, divorce. As you may know, in Islam, divorce is talaq is um, 
procedure initiated by the husband, never by the wife. I mm -hmm. mean, there are kind of exceptions. So you have a lot of possibilities, uh, including the fact that a couple can be divorced civilly. Mm -hmm. by the dominant by the court uh, of the dominant society but the husband in kind of retaliation or pressure <laughs> on the wife can refuse to give her the talak the, the, the religious divorce and then that's what the British call the limping marriages she's civilly divorced but not religiously and this is where suddenly you can see tensions mm -hmm. and, and what interests me is how this kind of tension can be solved Solved or, or, or resolved by by a new religious discourse, and this is happening in the West. Muslim leaders divorcing the husband, which they would never do in a Muslim country, and taking the position and the and support uh, in favor of the wife and supporting the wife. Mm -hmm. uh, same kind of tension on custody of children when you have inter-religious marriage. As you may know in Islam, the father gives not only the name to the child, but also the religious identity. So he has a responsibility in educating his children in Islam. So when he divorces his wife and if the wife is not Muslim, then it can create tension on who is the guardian of the children. And most of the time, according to Islamic law, the father should remain the guardian of the children, while the dominant civil law, as you know, tend to give this privilege or duty to the to the mother. And then you have big, this become, can become international conflicts when, you, when the father is also a citizen from a Muslim country, then he takes the children with him, mm. brings them back to the country, said, I don't want them to go back to their mother. You know, you have the movie known and renowned Never Without My Daughter. It's, it does illustrate this kind of conflicts happening. Mm. So the point here is not to say, oh, Muslims don't claim an Islam state in the West, so we are okay. Yes, in some ways this is not the major issue, but there are other issues happening uh, in the, at the level of family and status of women that create a lot of tensions. So the paradox is, you may know or remember, the Archbishop of Canterbury two years ago issued a statement saying that he it was about time to consider Sharia in the West and in the legal system of Western societies. My research shows that this is already happening. Mm -hmm. The judge across the courts in Europe and in the U.S. know about Islamic law because they have to deal with family issues of this sort. I just so, so what? What you re uh, so uh, the the blinders that we have developed toward Islam, especially after nine eleven, yes. say talking now in, in the United States, and and the kind of the misunderstanding of the intellectual uh, discourse in Islam, has not taken of the, the account uh, of the extent to which. Islam and Muslims change in the West by virtue of their living here. And, and you, you've identified two things. One is private religious decisions, yes. on the one hand, is, is really key. You know, well, how am I going to rethink my religion in the face of the situation? But the other, you're saying institutionally, is essentially the Western legal process, yes. which, as part of a, an individual Muslim's being a citizen of a country wants to reflect 
that person's situation, yeah. but kind of understand Islamic so- law and see how it must be adapted. Absolutely. Okay. So, so I guess the the uh, uh, the the issue uh, becomes: Is this a gradual process that over time will lead to a situation which, for example, like uh, the Jews in diaspora? In other words, are are Muslims in diaspora uh, like the Jews were in diaspora, or is, are there qualitative differences? Uh, there are a few qualitative differences. First, when it comes to Islam as such, I would not say that Muslims are diaspora, because unlike in Jews, there is no real center. Of course, Mecca is a holy place and there is a pilgrimage, but it's not, you know, the term diaspora comes with the idea of dispersion after the destruction of a center and the idea that you can come mm-hmm. back to this center. There is nothing equivalent in the different narratives of Muslims I've studied in the West. Uh, so I would not talk about a Muslim diaspora. Mm-hmm. The concept that makes sense for Muslims across cultures and nations is the Ummah concept, which is a global concept by itself. It's a community of believers all linked together in the faith of God and the Prophet Muhammad and for this doing the same kind of prescription and devotion across countries, nations, languages, and also across histories. The Ummah encompasses not only all the Muslims living on the planet today, but all the past generations. So for me, this is the concept that makes sense to understand this uh, transnational situation of Muslims. And some of them, and this is a big challenge today for Muslims, some of them would live according to this ideal of the Ummah, sometimes in a very abstract and a deculturated way. They don't want to hear any more about the culture of their parents or the culture of the country of origin of their parents. Even sometimes they don't want to hear about the culture of the West. This is the Ummah that makes sense. In a very abstract way and sometimes dangerous way and we can talk about mm-hmm. this maybe later. But you have lots of other Muslims that think that to be a good Muslim is to connect with the culture, the the history, the memory of Morocco, of Egypt, of Turkey. And that's where you can see the difference, because even on second or third generation, some Muslims would identify. And that's why I would rather talk about diaspora in this case, because then there is still a center, symbolic center, that is what gives sense in cultural terms of my uh, Islamic identity. So it's my Turkish background, because I eat still this kind of food. I cannot have the fast during mm-hmm. the month of Ramadan if at the end of the day I don't get the food of my mother or grandmother. You know what I mean? This is for me a more diasporic way in the sense that it's I acknowledge that I am away from this center but I still reconnect with it in different ways. And I have seen that mm-hmm. among Pakistani, among Turks, um, among people coming from African countries, from Iran. They all tend to leave Islam within the boundaries of this ethnic or national groups and connect with it at some moments. So this is a tension. The one who connect to the abstract, deterritorialized Ummah, and the one who connect to Islam through national, cultural, ethnic links, you know, Moroccan, Egyptian, Turks, Iranians, Kurds, 
Mm-hmm. So, so what then becomes Im- interesting here, you are a student of political science, yeah. is that this uh, nuanced subtlety that you're describing gets implicated in the politics of the Middle East, the identification with the homeland, and, and there is a real opportunity for actors at various levels, whether uh, terrorists or uh, governments that the people identify with even though they've traveled or even Western foreign policy to to hijack meanings Absolutely. that do not reflect the subtlety that you're describing. Yeah, this is a very good point actually. Across these studies we have witnessed different kind of in, intrusion actually of state interest and political interest on these different identities. The first one is for the diasporic kind, the one who connect to countries or cultures of origin. Some states are very intrusive on the definition of Islam in the West. Um, In Europe, for example, Turkey, Algeria, Morocco have been very active in working closely with European states, especially uh, France and Germany, to define what is Islam in the country. And since 9-11, they have even gained more political resources to say we're going to protect our foreign, uh, our nationals or ex-nationals from the spread of terrorism or or radical Islam. Mm -hmm. One. So this is still going on. I can see also the the play out of diasporas like Pakistanis, even Palestinian diaspora in the US and how they still connect with, for example, Pakistan and, and try to be involved in the politics in Pakistan. So this, you're absolutely right. This is one. Number two, the more abstract Ummah and deterritorialized approach to Islam will um, facilitate in some way the political activism of radical uh, uh, agent coming from transnational Islamist network that are very active uh, in the West. And they can recruit, including people who want to convert to Islam and don't have a lot of background of what is Islam, and can be very um, attracted toward a discourse that is a political discourse and they consider a religious discourse, you know, because Islam as an ideology of resistance today can be very, uh, it can be very difficult to disentangle it from a pious attitude. Look at Bin Laden, he looks like a religious man, but he he has a faith to be a political agent. And a lot of people uh, circulating across the West, uh, connected to this loose transnational network, can be very appealing to Muslim youth who tend more to identify to this idea of the Ummah. And it can, in this case, facilitate the uh, entry into radicalism or, or political violence. And, and the, you, you speak of the virtual community. The technology yes. oh, yeah. has empowered uh, an identification with the Ummah, but also one that can be distorted by uh, people with a political agenda such as bin Laden and al-Qaeda and other groups? Yeah. Uh, In the book, I wanted to, because I know that lots of young people in the West, when it comes to religious questions, and they have a lot, they don't turn to the imam in the mosque at the corner of the street. They go on the Internet. 
And this is an attitude that you can find um, among the youth, whatever the religion mm -hmm. is. And so I wanted to look into websites um, who provide religious guidance to Muslims. And through this survey, it was clear that lots of websites are actually um, uh, managed uh, by and controlled by Salafi. That the conser conservative, very uh, religiously conservative yeah. groups that that tend to provide an interpretation of Islam. The problem is they present it that this is the true Islam. This is the orthodoxy of Islam. And for people who don't have a lot of knowledge, and most of them don't, um, they tend to uh, identify or, or accept this particular interpretation because it does also play on a very simple message that tend to oppose what is haram, which is forbidden, to halal, which is permitted, and with no nuances in the middle, which is, again, not the, the major trend in the Islamic tradition. Historically, it has never been this way. In mm. Islam, you ask one question, you get at least, for the Sunni, four responses. <laughs> but here it's haram or halal, and everything that can be related to the context, to the history, to the philosophy, to, to um, intellectual debate is considered a suspect, mm -hmm. which is very, very dangerous. So most of these websites are not politically active, but they provide a very religiously conservative approach. They tend to pitch in opposition Muslims and the West. And once you are on this mindset, you can be a very vulnerable uh, prey for uh, political activists that tend to recruit because a new form of jihad, and this is the new forms related to Al-Qaeda, tend to be a Salafi religious discourse like the Bin Laden one, wrapped up in the jihadi political activism, brought for example by Zuhairi, the second of, of, um, of the Al-Qaeda uh, movement that comes from Egypt. So you have here the two mingling together. And so for young people, you look religious but you, all, you have also political facet coming in, and they are not always able to disentangle or distinguish both. Mm -hmm. well, uh, the question is often asked, well, where are the reformers uh, in, in Islam? Uh, and in your book, you actually show who they are and uh, the subtlety and the richness of their arguments. But in where we are right now in our discussion, it's very clear that the complexity and the rich richness in the history of Islam and in contemporary Islam is obscured yeah. by the politics working with the yeah. technology Absolutely. to to you know and and both in you know on both sides of the political fight basically because clearly for the terrorists uh, they they have a handle on disaffected young people who may be living in their ethnic community in Europe and unemployed on the one hand and on the other hand uh, the Western foreign policies that want to perceive Islam as some universal threat to replace uh, communism as our adversary. Yes, uh, absolutely. I mean, we, we are facing a very dangerous time. I, I think... You know, we always talk about golden age and, and dark age. I think that for Islam, it's a, as a religious tradition, it's a dark age. The medieval time of Islam is happening now mm. in the sense that 
uh, what happened in the last 20 years is that this very narrow, essentialized and historical approach to Islam that you can call neo-Salafi, which is actually um, the Wahhabi interpretation that became global. You, you don't have to go to Saudi Arabia. Today you can find uh, religious leaders and, and agents conveying this interpretation across the world. And, um, so, and they tend to present themselves as the only true uh, guardians uh, of Islam, of the Islamic tradition. And what is dangerous to me is that they tend to discard and reject any contextualized approach. I give you a very concrete example that I like very much that I found on one of these websites. Someone was asking very genuinely, is it permissible as a Muslim to celebrate a birthday when you live in the West? Because it's a practice that is pretty much common. And the response of the website... And the, what kind of website was this? It was, it was like Islam question and answers. Okay. I cannot remember exactly, but yeah. it was a very conservatively, uh, mm-hmm. uh, conservative, religiously speaking, a kind of website. And, and they, the response was, because the Prophet Muhammad didn't celebrate birthdays at the Medina time, it is haram. While the, the, so it's not permissible. It's not permissible. You know. While the, the response from the tradition would be, the, the tradition, mm. the religious tradition on Islam takes the opposite position. Everything that is not explicitly condemned from a Quranic source is allowed. So in the Quran, it's very improbable you're going to find any reference or condemnation of birthday. So the position of the other <laughs> scholars would say it's allowed. You, there is nothing in celebrating birthday that is contradicting the basic principles of Islam. Mm-hmm. So you see, this is the tensions going on among Muslims today. And for young people, it can be very disturbing because they do not know. And, and they tend to, to consider the West as a major, even if they live in the West for some of them, as a major threat on their religious identity. And the Salafi response tend to play out this, this fear mm-hmm. among them, mm-hmm. while a grounded traditional religious response would, on the contrary, downplay the fear and say, it's okay, you can be a good Muslim and wear a suit, you can be a good Muslim and celebrate birthday, you could be a good Muslim and go to college. You see, and so I can see among Muslims in the West a trend trying exactly to counter this global doxa of Salafi or, 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 or neo-Wahhabi interpretation. And it's very interesting that, in my opinion, the big fight is not going on today between Islam and the West. It's going on among Muslims themselves mm-hmm. to break down this very um, narrow-minded uh, um, view of what is possible or not. I'm curious, if, if one were a Western policymaker, what then is the way to influence the positive trends? Obviously, don't 
overplay the terrorist threat from all uh, Muslims. Mm-hmm. But 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 what else is involved? I mean, because you know, as I listen to you, and I, 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 I I'm coming to understand the complexity of what's going on. I, I, in the back of my mind is ringing all of these columnists in the U.S. who write, "Where is the are the moderates in Islam?" You know, and so on. So so it, it's like we're 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 condemning them for not doing what they're doing yeah. in some sectors. Uh, uh, talk a little about that. What, what can you do to further this? Leave it alone? No. Uh, I think there is a political and public responsibility today. I would say in the West, especially in Europe, there is a need to um, make room for religious voices in the public space coming from Muslims. Most of the time in Europe, when Muslims are allowed to take part in the public debate, they tend, according to the pattern we described before, to put aside their religious background and to try to act as this universal abstract citizen. And I would say that for some of them it can be quite a twist. But if the public space is more open to religious voices or civic actions based on religion and Islam, it can help. Today, it is not possible to consider all actions driven by Islam as automatically suspicious. If people build mosques, it's a big religious organization, if they want to talk about issues based on their faith, they should be able to do so Mm -hmm. without being suspected. And I think there is here a kind of political work to do. And also what what the politicians should do in the West and also in America is to invite this religious uh, uh, representative to the table to discuss issues outside Islam. What is very uh, ghettoizing is, if I may, (laughs) is is when you talk to Muslim only when international security or national security is at stake. If they are part of the society, you have also to invite them to participate and give their opinions on general social issues. This would help tremendously the, what I call the de-ghettoization of Islam. And third option, it would be really to uh, facilitate the creation of institutions of education uh, that would build on this tradition of Islam and not let these free agents that are politicized get the education of the new generation. You know, I've been to several mosques and organizations. You can see that people, they get for free this kind of uh, global doxa I was mentioning, because mm-hmm. they get free Koran, free materials and booklets to do mm-hmm. prayers, to, to educate their children. This is dangerous. You have to provide as an alternative, and I think it could be a very uh, civic action to open up and, and create places and resources to train a new kind of clerics or leaders that could counter uh, this global trend. Well, let's take some of these ideas and apply them to women uh, yes. in, in Islam and in the West, basically. Because what, what you show in your book is uh, that there is a lot, uh, and, and this is a, a, a point runs throughout your book, that, that there is a, an intellectual creativity yes. in the West that yeah. you don't find in, in the home country. What, what is the situation of women 
in Islam. You've talked a little about that with regard to divorce and, and who has custody of the children and so on and, and a disillusion of marriage. But, but, but the, wo- the woman is a secondary person in Islam. Is that a fair way to put it? And then how is that changing in the West? Um, first, the, the fight or struggle of women to improve their condition is not a specificity of Muslim women in the West. We should be clear yeah, on right, that. Definitely, okay. yes. I, yeah. it, it is a, a, a fight in Muslim societies themselves. And I would say that... Um, Actually, the, the condition of women has improved if you look at their position on the job market, in public space. It's, they are all out there and active. You know that the number of female students in Iranian university is bigger than the female, than the number of, of male students. Mm-hmm. So this is, this is, there is more women in the university than men at, in Iran, which is, you know, seen as a country where this kind of, of phenomenon could not happen. So I would say that there are improvements. When you look at the uh, way that women are controlling their own life as individuals, we go back to family laws. You have to know that Sharia in the Muslim world most of the time uh, comes down to these family laws. And it does create an inequality between men and women. At the same time, because of the fight of this women's group in the last 50 years, there have been improvements. For example, Morocco has um, reformed the the civil code a couple of years ago to ground to complete equality between men and women in the divorce procedure and all that. So it's changing also country by country, case by case. When I was referring to the creativity of Muslims in the West, it's not so much on the women condition, Mm -hmm. except that in the West, the only thing where women are really concerned in the West is on disentangling the patriarchal discourse from the Islamic prescription. Take the discourse on on honor killing, for example. This is a point where in Muslim societies it's still very difficult to separate both. And you're going to find a lot of justification of uh, killing women for honor reasons based on Islam. While in the West, more and more young men, Muslim leaders, male leaders are saying this is not acceptable according to Islam. So this is kind of interesting separation happening. Here, the, the, if I may follow on the creativity yeah, point, please, please. the creativity point, in my opinion, concerns more the critical stand toward the Islamic tradition when it comes to, of course, women's status, but also the status of the other, the non-Muslim. The Muslim who is not religious. So for me, all the, the, the sexual minorities, this is where the creativity of Muslims are, are, is more visible in the West. I'm not saying that Muslims individually are not creative in the Muslim world. But today, if in, in a Muslim world, if you take position in favor of complete equality of women, in favor of or against apostasy, or, or, or in favor of homosexuality, you can get into lots of trouble. Either you end up in jail mm-hmm. or um, condemned for apostasy or killed by an extremist group. And 
So the social, political, structural condition make this kind of creativity very difficult. While you are in the West, you can enjoy a free space where you, you can think and write without automatically, of course you can refer to Rushdie or other people, but without being automatically uh, discriminated or, or, or being threatened for that. And I can see this happening. Today you have a trend among Muslim intellectuals, and especially in the U.S., because the characteristic of the Muslim immigrants in America is to be part of the elite. Uh, Muslim elite is in the U.S. and they can think freely, and you can see the fruit of this thinking mm-hmm. happening. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, uh, uh, you you discuss uh, three women in your book: Asma Barias, Balas, um, Asma uh, Barlas, yeah. Yeah. Uh, 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 Amina Wadud and Kasia Ali. Kishia. Yeah, Kashia. Sorry. Uh, what what characterizes them? Is it the same uh, uh, sort of taking a stance uh, that that has a, a general meaning, uh, and, but being able to take it in the West? Yeah, absolutely. First, the three of them are women, American women which is interesting. Uh, They are also very educated. They are all uh, scholars, uh, scholars of Islam. Um, Some are converts. I mean, Awadud is convert to Islam. So this is an interesting phenomenon where you can see American Muslim women um, with a background which is not automatically a Middle Eastern background, taking position on the Islamic tradition and being very critical. The most um, paradigmatic example of that is the work that Amina Wadud has done about um, promoting complete equality between gender uh, in in the Islamic tradition, to the point that she is challenging today the leadership of men on religious matters. She is the one who, in 2005, led for the first time a congregational prayer as an imam. I mean, there is no problem for a woman leading a prayer as an imam as long as she's only leading the female, a female congregation. But for a mixed-gendered congregation, it is an issue in the tradition for a woman to, for a woman to lead. So she has taken this kind of position, but she has done a tremendous work to read the Quran, to, f- to ground in theological argument or hermeneutics of the Quran this position in favor of complete equality. A take is to say the Quran is not misogynistic. The Quran considers individual as individual. And they, the, there is a distinction according to uh, gender in terms of biology. What the Quran doesn't do is to connote positively or negatively, to connotate positively or negatively this biological difference. The, the so it's, it's indifferent. The Koran is indifferent. No, to no, what no. I'm sorry, I'm not clear yeah. here. The Koran is not indifferent. It does acknowledge the gender difference because it's a biological difference. Mm-hmm. What the Koran doesn't do is to put this uh, biological difference in a sort of scale or, or gradation or... or um, evaluation plus for men and, and minus mm-hmm. for women. 
even if there are some verses that have been advanced, and she talks about it, where, where for example, there is a, a verse in the Quran where it said that um, God prefers men. I mean, I'm translating very roughly yeah. here. So, but she, what she wants to say, I mean, she she goes for an hermeneutic of what is man in Arabic and how you can use it in different ways, socially connoted or biologically connoted. And what she says here is that it's a social meaning, and if today the woman has a capacity to act like a man socially, there is no such a preference based on biology. The the distinction here is about sociology. So in other words, in the world of today where women can be more educated, can lead a family, there is no need for men to take advantage of women in this sense. And and she goes back to the Koran to do this kind of uh, interpretation. And she says we cannot rely on the traditional interpretation that has been done by men and with an obvious patriarchal bias to to codify sort of social differentiation and inequality between men and women. Mm-hmm. You, you quote uh, uh, two women uh, in, in different parts of your book, and it, it was interesting because uh, the, the West gives choice and opportunity, and, and that can lead to, to different uh, directions, yes. neither of which is threatening to the West uh, in a broader sense. So you quote one woman who observes the five pillars of Islam but does not cover her head. I wear I wear the veil on the inside. Yes. You quote her as saying, uh, and then another very modern woman who says to you, "It is important for me to show that one can be a modern woman and at the same time cover her head because it contradicts the idea of a woman oppressed under the law of hijab." Yeah. So 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 there so the West empowers a kind of creativity. Yeah and privatization at the individual level uh, uh, that uh, that offers uh, uh, well that that it reveals a complexity that Western perception has to see this if it's going to deal in a nuanced way uh, with Islam uh, uh, in the West And, and ironically when we get back to security the threats of terrorism, that forces people who might be Muslims into a box yes. uh, that that actually cuts against our own interests, if you can talk at that level. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we are in a situation where there is also politicization of religious behaviors uh, coming from the state because of security reasons. You know, there is this dichotomy between the good Muslim and the bad Muslim. The good Muslim, especially in Europe, is a Muslim that looks like us. You know, he's not a Muslim anymore mm-hmm. <laughs> in the sense that he doesn't bring his Islamic bagage in 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 social life, and this is okay. The good, Mus- the bad Muslim is the one who want to be. Muslim who want to follow the pillars, who want to practice his faith, and in in Western Europe, especially, he can or she can be seen as a potential terrorist agent because there is this automatic connection between religious conservatism and political terrorism and terrorism today. So. But what I, what I show in the book is that, that the range of practices is much bigger and more nuanced than these two boxes. 
and and you have a vast array of possibility going from the nominal Muslim who doesn't do or she doesn't do any more lot things related to Islam to the more conservative one that will Uh, comply to some dress code, to some gender segregation, and so on. And in the middle, you have this kind of persons, most of them, that will try to follow the prayers, the fast, the dietary rules, uh, but not automatically wanting to be connoted as Muslim in the public space, so not wearing the dress code. That's the kind of woman saying, I wear the hijab inside, because if I wear it outside, I'm going to get into some kind of trouble. Mm -hmm. And so, in the middle, so this is, you can create a very sophisticated typology of religious practice. The problem is exactly that when it comes to public discourse and position in public space, all these practices are completely um, uh, erased, and you have to fit into the, one of these boxes, the good or the bad Muslim, and it does create a lot of frustration, especially for young people who consider that the West is their country, the society in which they live is their country. They don't intend to go back anywhere, and they don't see why they have to, you know, constrain themselves to this political international discourse. One final question, uh, requiring a brief answer because our time is running out. What, how would you advise uh, students, on the one hand, to prepare to, to study Islam, to, un, uh, to really understand uh, 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 Islam? And on the other hand, what would your advice be to the public to, to kind of uh, broaden their understanding of Islam? Very briefly, I mean, for any student of Islam, I would advise him or her not to limit uh, himself or herself to the Quran. I mean, the Quran in itself, I say this a lot to my students, is the Quran is one of the, these revealed texts that doesn't have a master narrative. You take the Bible, there is a beginning and the development of any story from the creation of the world to the patriarch and so on. Nothing has, has existed the same way in the Quran. It's like a poem, you know. So the meaning is fluid, is going anywhere in its opposite. It's like, if I read a poem and you read a poem, we're not going to come up with the mm. same interpretation. And I think as I have to understand this clearly, that to go to the Quran to understand any contemporary event in Islam is a counter is a counterproductive. They have to know the text and the major interpretation of it, but not to limit themselves to that. And they have, in some way, to look into a particular context, a society. They have to ground this religious knowledge in a particular area. It can be the Middle East, it can be Asia, Africa, or Europe. It doesn't matter, but they have to go and encounter real Muslims, living, what I call living Islam. Mm -hmm. And what about the public? You mean the public? Big understanding Islam. I mean, not necessarily a student, but what, what, what is the one thing that, that might help in perceiving Muslims correctly? Um, what would help immensely would be not to consider Islam as exceptional. What is very um, uh, worrisome is this 
taken for granted assumption that Islam is exceptional when it comes to violence, when it comes to women's rights. When no, Islam is not exceptional. I mean, there is a tradition, and and and, and it, it went through different stages, and and. And there is Islam with its limit, theologically speaking, and there are Muslims, and Muslims are, are people of flesh and blood, and, and so they, they are more pragmatic than we can think of, and, and they have to see them as human beings like they would see anybody and not define them automatically through the lens of their religion. When someone has said, I am a Muslim, he or she is requested to to respond to lots of questions uh, concerning Islam where sometimes they have no responses on it and they are also expected to act in a certain way and this is very important again it goes back to these boxes we are talking about before so forget the box and look at the person you have in front of you <laughs> on, on that note uh, Jocelyn I want to thank you very much thank for coming you. to Berkeley and being on our program thank you and thank you very much for joining us for this conversation with history You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.